Good morning. It's Tuesday, March 2nd. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. Today, the Supreme Court is going to hear two election law cases out of Arizona. These cases could have long-term national implications. The Republican argument is for the court to reinterpret key parts of the Voting Rights Act. Democrats say... That reinterpretation could make the landmark law virtually toothless. Vox's legal expert Ian Milheiser breaks down the history and significance of the Voting Rights Act and what today's Supreme Court cases could do to it. The 1965 law spelled out a few different ways that it should be enforced. Now, one part, Section 5, required counties that had a history of disenfranchising people based on race to get permission from the federal government to make any changes to their voting laws. The idea there was to stop any discriminatory laws from going into effect. That section was watered down by the Supreme Court in 2013. The other enforcement tools are in Section 2, which is the focus of today's arguments. Section 2 says, There cannot be any laws that prevent racial minorities from voting. And it covers two types of laws, ones that were explicitly designed to disenfranchise minorities, and then laws that, regardless of intent, result in racial disenfranchisement. And here's something interesting. When President Reagan updated Section 2 in the 80s, there was a young Justice Department lawyer who was adamantly trying to stop it from passing. His name was John Roberts. Yes, the man who would become Chief Justice Roberts. As the law currently exists, courts have to go through this nine-part test to determine whether a law violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And they have to weigh a whole bunch of factors like a precinct's history of racial discrimination and the state's racial polarization. Now, Milheiser explains this is difficult, it's messy, but it's necessary work to make sure that voting laws are compliant with the Voting Rights Act. Republicans in these cases want a new test, one without so many limitations. But critics say, if the court agrees, Section 2 is going to be gutted. The last 12 months in pro sports have been filled with dramatic moments. Like, if you like rising stars, the U.S. Open delivered. Naomi Osaka wins her second U.S. Open championship. At the Super Bowl, you had Tom Brady claiming another title, showing the world, despite his age, he is not done yet. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers have a second Super Bowl title in franchise history. And Tom Brady doesn't pass the torch. But even with all the great storylines, did you actually watch? A lot of folks didn't tune into these live events. The Super Bowl got its lowest ratings in 15 years. The U.S. Open was down 45%. Jamel Hill makes a pretty provocative case in The Atlantic. She writes, America doesn't need pro sports after all. Dorte, guess how many hours of sports I watched this year? 10, 12? <laughs> Should have said minutes. Zero. I watched zero <laughs> pro sports this year. I mean, not to brag, but I was not into sports way before it was cool to be not into sports. I just want to put that on the record. You are apparently part of a bigger group. Now, Hill explains these ratings drops are part of a trend that started before the pandemic and then sped up when COVID-19 hit. More and more people are choosing streaming services over cable and satellite. Live sports is not always part of the package. 
Also, younger people in the U.S., Gen Zers, they don't seem as interested in sports as previous generations. A recent poll showed Gen Zers are twice as likely as millennials to never watch sports at all. And so maybe the takeaway of all of this is Americans aren't as emotionally invested in sports as we thought they were. We are financially invested, though. And the truth is, pro sports is a huge business, and there was just too much at stake not to play, even during this pandemic year. But the numbers, the ratings, they don't lie. Televised sports have not been the escape that people were hoping for. Should Washington, D.C. officially be named the 51st state? This used to be a question that didn't get much national attention, but the movement for D.C. statehood has gained momentum in recent years. And now, state legislatures across the country are starting to weigh in on the debate. The Washington Post is reporting lawmakers in at least nine states took formal steps to either support or oppose D.C. statehood. Democratic lawmakers in states from Maryland to Missouri to Georgia introduced pro-statehood resolutions. They're arguing D.C. is a huge city. Around as many people live in the district as do in some small states, and nearly half of them are black. So by not giving D.C. votes in the Senate and House, pro-statehood supporters are saying you're essentially disenfranchising these Americans. Missouri Representative Ashley Bland Manlove spoke to The Washington Post. Now, she's a Democrat, and she says the aftermath of the Capitol insurrection is what convinced her to support D.C. statehood. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser said on January 6th, she didn't have the authority to deploy the National Guard. And Bowser also pointed out that many police and first responders who protected Congress against the rioters that day didn't have a voting representative in the building. Meanwhile, GOP lawmakers in Arizona and South Dakota have taken steps to oppose statehood. South Dakota State Senator Jim Bolin, who is also Republican, told The Post he doesn't think D.C. is big enough to be a state, not by population, but by landmass. Rhode Island, which is the smallest state geographically, would be 18 times bigger than D.C., if the district was made a state. Right. So Democrats are talking about population. Republicans are talking about the map. But the real issue is not geography here. It's political math. If D.C. became a state, it would almost certainly elect two Democratic senators. And that would shift the balance of power. So Democrats consistently get behind D.C. statehood and Republicans line up against it. And that's a really key point, because Congress ultimately has the power to decide if D.C. actually ever becomes a state. Mm -hmm. Eleanor Holmes Norton is D.C.'s non-voting delegate in Congress. Every year since 1991, she's introduced a D.C. statehood bill. Her bill could probably pass the House again like it has before, but to become law, Democrats have to figure out a way around a Republican Senate filibuster. That's not going to be easy. So it's tax season. Getting documents together, calculating deductions, getting the receipts, sending all those forms in can be stressful. Yeah, I mean, I, I dread it every year. And like so many other things, the pandemic is complicating matters. USA Today has some great tips. 
First, the IRS and accounting experts all say, do yourself a favor and file electronically. Don't mess around with mailing paper returns. It'll slow the whole thing down. USA Today points out the IRS is still dealing with backlogs from mailed tax returns from 2019. Last year, about 16 million taxpayers filed paper tax returns. And as of late 2020, close to half of them were still waiting to get their refund money. If you collected unemployment last year like so many people did, you gotta pay taxes on that money. Unless you clicked that box in the application instructing the government to withhold taxes up front from your unemployment check. And this is one of the reasons so many jobless people might be getting a smaller refund than they were expecting. Some might even owe taxes. Now, if you got stimulus money, that is not taxable income. And if you didn't get a stimulus check or if you received less than you think you should have, you can file for a credit. Now, on the flip side of that, maybe you got more stimulus money than you qualified for. Let's say you made more money last year than you expected to. USA Today explains you're not responsible for paying back the difference. If you still have any lingering tax questions, check out our guide to tax season on Apple News. We'll link to it in our show notes page. And as always, you can find these stories and more in the Apple News app. And while you're there, check out some of our audio stories. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.